Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, thank you for joining me for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Alejandra Mancia. Alejandra is associate professor of practical philosophy at the Department of Philosophy, Classics, and the History of Art and Ideas at the University of Oslo. Alejandra's new book is titled The Right of Necessity, Moral Cosmopolitanism and Global Poverty. It's published by Roman and Littlefield. We're all accustomed to the thought that individuals facing dire circumstances may rightfully take use of others' property in order to save their own lives. For example, one thinks it's obvious that in order to avoid freezing to death, a lost mountain hiker may rightfully break into and make use of a heated cabin that's not his property. But what justifies that idea? And what are its implications for a world where millions are subjected to sustained and systematic deprivation? The thought that under the current global order, those who are subject to such deprivation might have a right to take and use and seize and occupy whatever is needed in order to satisfy the requirements for their basic substance may seem radical. But the idea of such a right enjoys a long history in moral and legal thinking. As usual, there's a lot to talk about. But why don't we begin by greeting our guest. Hello, Alejandra. Hi, Bob, and many thanks for this invitation. I really look forward to talking to you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. We usually begin uh, these interviews uh, with uh, by asking the author to talk a little bit uh, about herself. So, we won't deviate from that. Uh, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Of course. Uh, so, as you said, I'm uh, an associate professor in practical philosophy at the University of Oslo. Uh, but I had quite a world tour before coming here. So, originally, I am from Punta Arenas, Chile, Patagonia, uh, the southernmost city in the world. And as Charles Darwin aptly described, the place is one of the most inhospitable within the limits of the globe. Uh, so it's windy, it's cold all year long, and it's very desolate, but I, I really love it. And I go back whenever I have the opportunity to do it. And um, I grew up in Punta Arenas. Um, I was lucky enough that my mom was an English teacher at the British school there. So I learned English uh, as a child, and that came uh, very handy <laughs> later in life. Sure. And my dad had a small bus company. Uh, he had uh, these buses uh, that went to Argentina. And so as a child, I was always between Chile and Argentina. And that was also important later in my life because it gave me a sense that borders 
don't really matter a lot uh, in places like Patagonia, for example. <laughs> so, um, I, as a kid, I was really very studious. I liked everything. Uh, I studied everything that came to my hands. I read a lot. I was a total nerd. Um, and I was quite a good student. And when the time came to decide what to study, I think in an act of rebellion and immaturity, I chose journalism uh, because I didn't know any better. And I went to study uh, journalism in Santiago. I enjoyed uh, studying journalism and I also enjoyed working as a journalist. I was a freelance writer for a few years uh, in some magazines and newspapers in Chile. I also worked as a TV reporter. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to travel around the world and also uh, within Chile. And uh, But I should say there was one area that uh, interested me quite a lot, which was... Um, it was environmental conflicts. Hmm. So I had the opportunity to uh, report on some environmental conflicts that were quite heated at the moment. So, for example, there was this uh, gold mine in the north of Chile where the company was claiming that they were going to relocate a mountain glacier in order to dig up the gold. And everyone was outraged at the suggestion. Uh, there was also this massive death of black-necked swans in a natural sanctuary in the south of Chile because the one of the largest pump, uh, pulp companies in the country was dumping all the wastewater uh, into the rivers that then flew into the, flowed into the sanctuary. Hmm. So there were all these questions, and I realized that as a journalist, my tools were quite limited in order to have answers for things like, well, how should these, uh, these uh, benefits and harms from these large projects be distributed, or who should have moral consideration when discussing questions about what kind of uh, economic development we want to have as a country, etc., etc. And, well, uh, with a friend, we decided that we were going to uh, go back to university and do a degree in philosophy, huh. uh, hoping that philosophy would have some good answers, or at least would... Uh, give us good tools uh, to answer uh, these kinds of questions. Uh, now, I should say as a journalist, you always feel like a, a notion of knowledge that is only one centimeter deep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was precisely trying to solve that, uh, that feeling, that very uncomfortable feeling. Um, so initially, I thought that philosophy was going to be a nice complement to my career as a journalist. Uh, but then as the time progressed, I realized, well, no, this is what I want to do as a full-time job. And this is not uh, an immature decision anymore. This is quite serious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I wrote my bachelor's thesis on Adam Smith's uh, theory of moral sentiments. I was working with uh, Maria Carrasco, who introduced me to this author. And I really enjoyed reading Smith, both the, the moral theory and the wealth of nations and everything in between, and uh, I applied. I was lucky enough that the year I finished my studies, um, there were these, go uh, these uh, government scholarships advertised to do PhD studies in Australia or New Zealand. Hmm. Uh, so I started looking uh, for uh, pos possibilities, and then I discovered that there was this Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics, at the Australian National University in Canberra. And I thought, great, this, is, uh, this sounds like exactly the place where I would like to be. Obviously, coming from uh, journalism, I was also more into the practical side of philosophy than into the theoretical side. Right. So, uh, so this was great. Uh, it worked out. And so I went there for almost four years. And uh, I just loved the culture of seminars and uh, morning and afternoon teas and permanent discussion with all the people. And, well, I got to know the work and uh, some great philosophers like Tom Campbell and Thomas Pogge, Bob Goodin, Christian Barry, Thomas Mautner. Um, and in between, I had been uh, visiting Oslo as a student and I really liked the Norwegian ethos, and I liked uh, the department. So when I finished my PhD, I applied for a postdoctoral position here, and I got it. Um, and then, well, I decided that I would at least try to continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there was this uh, 
this the, the uh, this opportunity to apply for a permanent job, and yeah, that's how I got here. Well, that's wonderful. Um, could you tell us um, maybe? Uh, it's, it's always interesting to hear that uh, professional philosophers have a background in some other enterprise that connected them with philosophical <laughs> issues. So the connection with journalism is is uh, is intriguing. Um, but um, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to this particular uh, kind of project? The the, the right of necessity and the, the interest in global justice? Yes, sure. So when I arrived at, at, uh, at CAPI, uh, I, I had a project that was basically, that had to do with the duty of humanity, uh, developed uh, the idea of a duty of humanity as developed in the Scottish Enlightenment by philosophers like Adam Smith and also David Hume and Francis Hutchison. I thought it was really interesting how they... Um, how they treated this duty um, um, in a way that it expanded the moral sphere beyond humans, or so I, I wanted to claim, and how there were different degrees of this duty depending on the context and so on and so forth. But then I started um, attending these seminars and um, I realized that because in Chile the, uh, the study of philosophy is very much based on the history of ideas, mm. There are some debates that are totally off the radar, and one of them was the debate on global justice. And at the time I was in CAPE, it was uh, it was all about, or not all, but it was a lot about global justice going on. Given the given the names that you mentioned uh, a moment ago, I could see that it was it was probably all about global justice. <laughs> exactly. So it was pretty obvious that well, why not try at least to connect my dissertation with this this topic that also seems so relevant and so important to think about and to do something about. So I started reading and after a while I realized that there were basically two sides on this debate um, and one side was uh, that of assistance cosmopolitans as I call them in the book and here you have uh, people like Peter Singer uh, most prominently who say well you know the well-off uh, can do so much good at so little cost and diminish suffering in the world at so little cost that we're failing terribly and we should be giving much more to the cause of the poor. Um, and on the other hand, there are justice cosmopolitans and these justice cosmopolitans start from a from the idea of a global basic structure. So they take roles, these ideals to the global level and they say, well, uh, it's not just assistance. Uh, what matters here is that there are certain harms that we're committing against the poor by creating, by upholding certain coercive global institutions that keep them in a state of deprivation. And normally the discourse, uh, the justice cosmopolitan uh, discourse is founded on the idea of basic human rights. So they start from a human rights discourse and then they, uh, they ground these, these duties. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the important point was, was, well, despite of the differences, they both agree that it's, it's all about the duties that the well-off have towards the needy. But uh, there, are, <laughs> there are at least two problems with this. One is, well... The duties remain dramatically unfulfilled. So if, if you take assist, duties of assistance, we're not doing nearly as enough as we should. And if we take duties of justice, needless to say, it's more or less uh, the same situation. So the duties remain unfulfilled. And so what may the needy people do in the meantime? What may they do now if those duties uh, are uh, permanently unfulfilled? And uh, also... Especially for justice cosmopolitans, I think it's just odd not to say anything or to say very little about what the right holders may do for themselves and by themselves to get out of their deprived situation if they really think that there is such a thing as subsistence rights. So I thought, well, this is it uh, and there is a gap here and that's the question I want to, uh, to tackle. What may the needy do by themselves and for themselves, what is morally permissible for the needy to do in this scenario? Right, and uh, uh, let me just sort of um, punctuate that as a um, as a sort of sideline observer to the global justice debates. One of the, the very interesting um, the things in the book and where you start is with that um, observation that 
so much of the the literature is so focused on um, the, the the moral duties of the people who are faring well under the global order. Uh, what the, you know, so much on the question of what the duties are of the well off to the to the the people at the bottom of the global order. Um, that the I guess even in some cases the the least well off the people who fare least well off un, under the uh, existing global order. Are, are often just portrayed as people who are recipients of either assistance or of justice rather than as agents. Um, exactly. And so you're, you're, the, the opening observation that there's a moral question about what those at the bottom of the global moral order, the global political order, may do in order to secure uh, their entitlements um, – uh, was refreshing in a way. I was like, oh yeah, there is an issue there that I, I don't think has gotten nearly enough attention. Yeah, so what what you say is exactly right. And um, so I, I should mention uh, Honor O'Neill, whose work I really respect and appreciate. She, uh, she says that uh, she characterizes this language of welfare rights as manifesto rights. And for her, the question is about the obligations uh, that the well-off have towards the needy and how we allocate the duties so that these uh, welfare rights are fulfilled. And O'Neill, uh, O'Neill's um, uh, take on welfare rights, I think, has been followed by a lot of theorists. And she says that the language of welfare rights is passive and it is recipient-oriented and, as you have just said, that uh, the right holders are really in this position of waiting for others to do things for them. Right. So waiting for the rights to be fulfilled. And I said, well, like, wait, who said that? Who decided that that's, that's how it has to be? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's how the project uh, took off. Well, excellent. So, um, so the, the book then, The Right of Necessity, is at least in part an attempt to sort of reintroduce or reinvigorate, uh, reinsert into uh, the discourses of, uh, around global justice, and this is a pretty large uh, set of discourses, um, the idea that um, th- those who are deprived um, uh, have a right to the things that are necessary um, uh, for subsistence or the, the, the things that are necessary in order to get them out of a state of deprivation. Um, now, that idea might strike uh, some readers and, and some of our listeners now um, – as kind of politically radical, but as the first part of your book is devoted to showing, um, the right of necessity has a long history and has its origins in some social, political, and legal thinkers that are not commonly associated with uh, radicalism, um, uh, particularly uh, Aquinas, uh, Grotius, and uh, Pufendorf. Um, could you uh, begin by sort of sketching out, uh, maybe even in very broad strokes, some of the historical background? Uh, to the right of necessity, which is where the book begins. Yeah, sure. So, um, as you say, the right of necessity has a very long pedigree in law and in theology and in philosophy. And it was Seneca who said that necessity knows no laws. Uh, But I I should say that uh, it's important to distinguish my understanding of the right of necessity from uh, the idea of the right of necessity in the law, both in common law and civil law systems. So in the book, I don't try uh, to say much about what this right legally implicates. I'm interested in the moral implications. And in the law, necessity uh, standardly refers to cases uh, where you have to choose between two evils and you choose the lesser evil. So the classic example um, is that of the hiker in the middle of the storm uh, who has to break into the hut, uh, someone else's hut, in order to save himself from the cold, and he may even uh, help himself to some spaghetti if he's hungry. But these cases are standardly one-off emergencies, and most of the time the examples are naturally caused emergencies. So in those situations, it seems that the law is happy to grant to individuals this right of necessity, this exceptional prerogative. But the law has never been happy to accept necessity uh, as a justification in the case of indigence. So those who are chronically deprived 
and not because there were the, there was some uh, natural phenomena going on, but maybe because there are some structural inadequacies in the social order where they live or because someone didn't comply with the duties that they should have complied with. They fell in this state of deprivation. And in that situation, the law is almost never going to say, well, uh, please help yourselves. So ex- exercise your right of necessity. Um, and it's fact, very interesting. In, mm, fact, yes? the, in fact, the law, at least... This, as it stands, is ready to pretty harshly punish those <laughs> in these cases, right? It, it doesn't only not grant them the permission to uh, uh, help themselves to what they need. It actually stands ready to pretty harshly uh, uh, punish them for taking what they need. Exactly, yeah. So there, there is this case I present in the book, uh, which is uh, famously known as London Southwark Borough Council versus Williams in 1971, where there was this group of homeless people uh, in, uh, that squatted, that uh, occupied uh, an empty building from the local council in London, and they were promptly evicted. And what Lord Denning said uh, in order to justify the eviction was precisely that. Uh, I will quote him here, but he says, if hunger were once allowed to be an excuse for stealing, it would open a door through which all kinds of disorder and lawlessness would pass. <laughs> uh, and and that, is a, that is a permanent ob- objection that uh, I've been getting with this project, and I, and I take it very seriously. And right. I think that's, that's how the law approaches uh, this idea that the chronically deprived may have a right. So... To go back to your to your question, uh, how does history come in here? Sure. Well, I started looking, and um, from the 12th century, 12th and 13th century onwards, um, there are these canonists and theologians, Christian canonists and theologians, that, in my view, extend the umbrella of necessity to these cases that are the ones that interest me, namely to cases of chronic deprivation that are not necessarily naturally caused. It doesn't really matter how they came about. The, the, what matters is that there are people in need and that they may exercise their right. And so in the book, I present uh, many different examples. Probably the best, uh, the best well-known example is Aquinas. Aquinas does say, however, that the right of necessity has to be exercised only in uh, when it's urgent. So you could argue that there there are commentators that say, well, it doesn't really fit uh, this. uh, My idea, others would say, well, um, yes, it does. So there are different different interpretations. But even if uh, Aquinas is not exactly in this boat, (laughs) Bonaventure and other canonists and theologians are for sure. And their justification is that, well, Uh, God gave the earth to all of us in common, we all share the fruits of the earth equally, and we may use whatever we need to subsist. And when property laws come into the picture, when human laws come into the picture, uh, that's all good. But if it's ever the case that someone falls in dire need, and if the only way for that person to survive is to uh, skip the law, to Uh, ignore the law, the human law, then of course they should because it's a retreat to the state of common use. So they understand the right of necessity as a revival of this primitive state of common use. Um, And that's a view that Grotius inherits. uh, And in my book, I really tend to favor more Pufendorf's position, because I think Pufendorf's position is the 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 more most plausible. Uh, but I can say some more about uh, the distinction between Grotius and Pufendorf uh, if you'd like me to. Yeah, that would be great because that does seem like uh, a, a crucial sort of distinction. There are two ways of understanding uh, of how the right of necessity is related to the um, the moral underpinning of the property system, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so uh, basically, uh, Grotius, uh, by understanding the right of necessity as a revival of the right of common use, uh, in my view, he understands it as a mere privilege, and that is problematic. So, um, yeah, I should say something about these technicalities. For those who are not familiar with language from uh, Hoffeldian language, Mm -hmm. uh, in my book I use, um, when I talk about the form of the right, I say that the right of necessity is not just a privilege to take, use, and occupy certain resources, but it's also a claim of non-interference against others 
right. to let me uh, take, use, and occupy those resources. What does that mean uh, in Hofeldian terms? So for those who haven't heard about Hofeld, he's basically a legal scholar and he's um, – uh, he's dividing different incidents of rights. He's trying to separate different ways in which the word right is being used. And so privileges for Hoffeld mean, mean that the person who has a privilege has no duty not to do a certain action. So the person is free to act in a certain way. Uh, and that's, I think, how Grotius understands the right of necessity. Now, you could say, well, that's more than enough. That's fine. Uh, why, should you, why do you need to add anything else? Well, privileges alone are very weak because they don't say anything about uh, other people having maybe an equal privilege to prevent the person from acting. Right. So my privilege against your privilege <laughs> isn't really much uh, it isn't really worth much. Right. Uh, and so the idea that the right of necessity is also a claim of non-interference. So what are claims? Claims for Hoffeld are these relational rights. If I have a claim, uh, you have a duty uh, towards me regarding uh, whatever, X. So privilege plus a claim of non-interference. Right. And what I see in Grotius is, well, the privilege is there. And it's not clear, uh, or at least he doesn't make it clear, that it's anything more than a privilege. And so he doesn't say anything uh, about what, for example, the property owners uh, should do when they confront a person in a situation of necessity. And he doesn't say anything about what the needy person may do, for example, if the property owner refuses uh, to give the property away. So then we go to Pufendorf, uh, Samuel Pufendorf. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that Pufendorf is visionary in so many ways. Uh, the problem is that it's not very methodic and uh, you, uh, it's, he doesn't develop the ideas uh, much further. So you find these ideas here and there and in paragraphs scattered everywhere uh, rather than a wholly developed conception. But I think that um, what I want to say about the right of necessity are to a big extent ideas that he – at least uh, in the, uh, he adumbrated these ideas that, uh, that were really useful to thinking about uh, the, how to write the book. Um, so Pufendorf, uh, contra Grotius, says, well, um, first of all, you don't really found this right on the common use of the earth and its resources. You don't found it. You don't, you don't think of the right as going back to, the, to this uh, right of common use. You just look at how people are and you realize that there is this basic pool of self-preservation. So everyone wants to have at least enough to survive and we don't want to be harmed. So that's, you could cash it out in contemporary terms as security rights. So we want a minimal sphere where we're not harmed, where we're not attacked unjustly. And we also need some basic material stuff in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, if we establish rules within society, rules that constrain our actions and that limit what we can do, then those rules have to be reasonable in the following sense. Um, they have to uh, guarantee that no one is going to fall below a minimal material threshold. And if they do, well, then it would be just irrational for them to follow the rules and it would be unreasonable for the rules to ask that someone follows them if they fo- if, if they're in that situation, um, yeah. So that's more or less the gist of the of the argument. Sure. Just one quick sort of follow up. Um, uh, it sounds to me, again, as a, a, a bystander in a lot of this, um, that the um, the Grotius position. Um, uh, looks harder to to separate out of certain kinds of theological uh claims than the than the position that that uh that you find in in Pufendorf it mm-hmm. looks as if 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 the if the right of necessity is ultimately tied to some conception of con- common ownership it it mm-hmm. it would seem harder to understand how that story is going to make sense unless you tell the story about God giving dominion. <laughs> right. is that, am I right? Again, just as an interloper, am I right in thinking that the Grotian story is going to be harder to, 
separate off of some of the theological presuppositions that we know undergird Grotius's um, uh, uh, more general philosophical bent? Sure. I mean, Grotius, uh, well, Grotius's project uh, nowadays has been um, uh, has been rescued and uh, has been tried uh, to. Uh, some people have tried to separate his uh, his ideas from uh, this theological background, and and he's well he he was called by many like the great secularizer of his time. So he tries to give all these arguments, saying, well, even though God didn't care for our states of affairs, even even though you can imagine this is terrible, but just imagine that God did not exist, this would still work right. because he wants to say these are natural uh, rights. But I, I, I and, and so does Puffendorf. But I think the big difference is that, well, if you take Puffendorf's discourse, it's quite easy to cash it out in contemporary terms in the la- in the ter- in uh, in the language of human rights. Yeah. Uh, for Grotius, that is not <laughs> such an easy step to take. So I, I think, well. Uh, again, um, I, I should say, uh, contra Alistair McIntyre, for example, who would be totally opposed to taking old <laughs> concepts and reapplying them <laughs> to contemporary contexts. And, well, you got it all wrong. I think that so long as you keep in mind the different contexts and the different discussions, it is very useful and it is very illuminating to bring uh, old concepts back uh, and see what they can do for us. That's right. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> excellent. So then, to to move on then to um, this the the sort of heart of the book, which the book has sort of two parts. One is a the historical part, which is tracing out different interpretations of the idea of a right of necessity in uh, uh, some of the natural law tradition um, that we were just discussing, and then the second part of the book is your um, a more or less straightforward moral argument uh, uh, for. for a rather expansive interpretation of the right of necessity. Um, so maybe begin uh, with uh, with the beginning of that um, conceptual argument. You argue that the right of necessity um, is best understood not as a counter principle or as a counterweight to property rights, but mm-hmm. rather the right of necessity is 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 at the heart of, or maybe in part of in part the driving force behind. Any justifiable, any justifiable property system. Could you mm-hmm. explain how you understand the relation between property rights and the right of necessity? Yes, of course. So uh, it is important to say that I make some assumptions in the book. Uh, sure. So I, I, I don't expect to make happy all of my readers, some of my readers hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of those assumptions is that when it comes to the justification of property rights, uh, I take a contractual approach. Uh, to property rights. So this argument might not work as effectively if you're uh, if you're purely a consequentialist or if you're a hardcore libertarian or if you're a human that is uh, uh, that is keen on conventionalism. Maybe it won't work in the same way. But if you take uh, the social contract line and you say, well, how do we defend? property rights, uh, how do we justify them to those who are subject uh, to these rules? Um, And this is, again, from Pufendorf. Well, the idea is basically that for a system of property rights to be reasonable, it must have as an inbuilt limitation this idea that the basic rights of those subject to it must be guaranteed. Otherwise, why on earth would you follow the rules? So um, that's my that's uh, that's how I understand reasonable reasonableness in that context. So for you to follow a system of property uh, of, of property rights, well, they'd better guarantee at least these very basic uh, minimal standards that these basic minimal standards are going to be met. Uh, otherwise, it is unreasonable, and it would be rational for you to follow. Um, to follow the, the, those rules. So uh, uh, going back uh, to Pufendorf, so what he suggests, and I think it's a very nice suggestion because in a way it reflects what's going to later happen with welfare states, is to say, well, the, it seems that there are some uh, duties of humanity that should be enforced by the law so that no one falls under a state of chronic deprivation. Uh, but if this does not happen, then, well, you cannot 
uh, you cannot expect that people don't claim the right of necessity. And uh, as it's interesting what you said at the beginning that, well, this idea seems very radical and it's really uh, interesting that the authors that uh, I study are not radical at all. So Pufendorf is adamant that we need social order and he wants to enforce the rules and it's all about obligations. But for those obligations to be reasonable, you need to respect at least this, these minimal uh, this minim- the, the satisfaction of uh, minimal basic needs uh, of all society's members. Um, yeah, so, so that's that's how property is connected uh, as internally to the right of necessity. So, just to follow up on that, so uh, if I, just to make sure I'm, I'm I'm getting the full force of the thought, um, is is your view then that uh, in a case of uh, proper exercise of the right of necessity, and we could talk in a moment about what we mean by proper exercise, but a proper mm-hmm. invocation of the right of necessity. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, in the Victor Hugo kind of case, you know, I, I, uh, I or a bunch of us need the bread. Uh, you've got the bread. Uh, I, 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 I take the bread. Um, uh, is that not even a case of stealing? Right? It's not what? a case of if I take your bread in order, because I need it in order to survive. Yes. Um, is it that I've stolen with justification or is that I haven't even stolen because the right of necessity cancels your property right in the bread in the first place? Yeah, it would be, it's not even stealing, good, uh, good, I good, would good. say. Yes, right, it's not. Mm-hmm, yeah. That, that, yes. That, that's very, that's, that's, that's very helpful, at least to me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so let, let's then um, uh, move, move on. Um, so the, the 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 idea then, and this this will help uh, the, the 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 bread the, the bread case uh, uh, might might help uh, uh, make the next point. The thought then is that uh, the right of necessity follows from uh, a right to um, uh, basic uh, subsistence. Is that is that mm-hmm. right? Yes, that's that's right. So I give uh, different so. Uh, uh, another assumption of the book is that there is such a thing as a basic right to subsistence. If you don't believe that there is such a thing, well, it's very hard to then accept that there is a right of necessity. But I give different arguments. Uh, there are many authors who have given different justifications uh, of the basic right to subsistence. Uh, I tend to side with Henry Shue's justification, but I, I also, again, go back to Grotius and Pufendorf and this idea that Everyone has a basic, they call it the sum, and they never really define the sum, but the the sum consists uh, of these things without which you cannot survive, and it it creates this minimal individual sphere over which you're sovereign, and uh, if, again, if you cash out that in contemporary terms, it looks very much like what they were thinking of was this idea that there are certain basic rights that all of us have. Yeah. Right. So, um, but you want to expand the right of necessity uh, not only to rights uh, in the things required for subsistence, but also rights to the things that are means to subsistence. So it's... It's it's more than just bread and shelter and things. It's also the means to uh, acquire those things or to produce them. Yeah, so that's right. So in the book, I do say that I, I think that uh, uh, in the contemporary world, in many cases, there will be situations where you cannot really access the resources. What you can access is the means to the resources. Right. So, for example, money. And in that case, I don't see why <laughs> you you wouldn't have a right of necessity to the money required to get what you need uh, to the to the the actual material stuff that you need. Uh, and yeah, you wanted to say something there. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe taking a step back would be helpful. So you've got these these two um, sort of counterfactual. Well, maybe maybe one of them isn't counterfactual. You've got these these two scenarios of overland and underland. Um, oh yes. Yeah. Could maybe maybe let's let's approach it by by talking about those two scenarios. 
Yeah, so I, I think, uh, yeah, that would be useful because um, I think that this two imagined societies, well, one is not imagined at all, really. The other is. <laughs> yeah. uh, they... This helps to um, this helps to reveal what I'm after really here. Sure. So uh, I say there is this society called Overland, uh, where everyone is guaranteed uh, access uh, to the to the means of subsistence and even more than that. So everyone is guaranteed that their basic rights are going to be satisfied, and where institutions fail, someone either individual or, or organization, is going to come and help. So no one falls in a state of chronic deprivation. There are no people in a state of chronic uh, deprivation. Uh, and overlanders are quite sporty, so they like going to the mountains, and the weather there, unfortunately, is quite unpredictable. So it happens uh, every other time that overlanders uh, are in the situation of the hiker in the storm, and they have to break into someone else's hut, and they do so, and there it's no problem because they have left this as a, a prerogative, both moral and legal prerogative, because they understand that otherwise this would be overly taxing on individuals. So they understand that this is reasonable to leave this prerogative for those stranded hikers. And after the storm passes, they, uh, they uh, restore what they have broken or the damage they've done, and everyone is happy. So the right of necessity in Overland is really occupying the role it should occupy, namely just for exceptional one-off emergencies. But then we go to Underland, uh, and this is not imagined at all. <laughs> so what I say in the book is this is much more what this resembles uh, the world we live in now. And in this world, property rights are heavily enforced, uh, and there are property rules in place, but not everyone is guaranteed minimal access to these provisions that they need in order to lead a life. So their basic right to subsistence is not guaranteed, not for everyone. And uh, people are not always lucky to get someone or some organization to aid them out, and so they fall in this deprived, in this chronically deprived state. And their only option is to resort to the right of necessity. But this has a very high cost because they can get punished and they can be further marginalized and uh, so most of them in the end don't, uh, don't exercise a right anyway. And so what is my point? My point is to say, well, today we live in a society that resembles underland. So uh, we give this right. Oh, and I forgot to say, in underland, hikers are fine. Hikers are granted the right of necessity if they are, uh, if they are ever in need. So what I want to say in the book is, well, our society resembles Underland, so we, we grant this right to stranded hikers. So if Bill Gates is hiking and he runs into a storm, he may exercise his claim of necessity, his right of necessity. But we don't grant this right to people who are chronically deprived because something is not working properly. And that is where the injustice lies, and that's where we should be looking. Um, so I, I should say... Um, right now maybe that even though I say quite a lot on what the needy may do uh, for themselves as individuals in order to get out of the plight, I don't want to distract the attention uh, too much to that, um, uh, to those sort of cases, because in the end, ultimately, I think that most of those who may claim necessity today cannot do it because resources are inaccessible, it's too hard, they're too far, um, and so we shouldn't be wondering as philosophers, well, how much force or what may the individual do or not do? May he steal my laptop? May he hack my bank account? Uh, what matters to me is more to show this other point, namely that what we should be striving for is a society where people only claim the right of necessity when they're hiking in the mountains and they, they are in the middle of a storm, not uh, where they are chronically deprived and so they have to choose between right of necessity or, uh, yeah, chronic deprivation. So, excellent. So, um, in Underland, then, um, is it, um, is it, um, are people morally blameworthy for locking their houses? <laughs> the well-off, I mean. <laughs> for putting obstacles in the way of deprived people from... Uh, from getting resources is 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 that a 
would that be morally blameworthy? Well, so we're probably getting to one of the more contentious parts. Yes, of the book. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and I, while I was writing, I have to say I felt quite responsible for what I was writing because I was thinking, you know, uh, what message our readers are going to get out of this? Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of uh, intellectual honesty, I felt I needed to write it as I did it, so I, I needed to say something about this, these kinds of cases. Uh, but at the same time, I feel quite wary because I don't want uh, I, I don't want people to get the wrong message and think like, well, now wh- what is she saying? Like it, this is just we're game for uh, the needy and revolution starts and you know. Right. So yes, I do say in the book that um, I don't use the word blameworthy because um, and this is probably. Because I like, uh, and I, I try to use in the book this idea, uh, a very good idea uh, of Iris Marion Young uh, on a social connection model of responsibility. Right. So I think that talking about strict liability or the or of the well-off being liable uh, for the plight of the poor, well, maybe, yes, maybe there are some individuals, some institutions that are directly, clearly liable for the plight of the poor. But I think that most of us are not. Uh, rather, we're responsible to different extents in a very diffuse, difficult-to-determine way uh, for this system and these processes that create uh, chronic deprivation. So I do say, yes, I bite the bullet, I do say that um, if one is confronted with someone in, in need, uh, one should let the property be taken uh, and we shouldn't be uh, building higher fences and uh, training uh, fiercer dogs. We should be trying to end a state where people are forced to claim that prerogative, which should be exceptional. Right, right, right. So m- maybe that's a good segue then into um, uh, the conditions under which you think uh, the prerogative is, um, uh, is is properly invoked. So you've got uh, – you identify three conditions for uh, the proper invocation of the right of necessity. Um, you say the need must be basic. The person in need must not in invocating uh, – invoking rather the – uh, the right of necessity that they can't be violating others uh, basic other basic rights, and the mm-hmm. exercise of the right of necessity must be la- a last resort. Um, could you spell out uh, uh, those conditions for us? Yes. Well, so the first condition, uh, I I think I've already uh, said a bit about it. So I I I think that the right of necessity is about basic need, and the arguments I give in the book are about basic need. So and by basic need, I understand. Uh, the minimal material uh, resources that you need in order to carry out life. Uh, I don't even say decent life. Uh, so my conception is pretty minimal. Uh, and um, some might object that it's too minimal. So why, uh, why just basic needs? Why not more than that? I think that maybe uh, one could give arguments uh, for extending the right of necessity to other things, but I don't do that uh, here. I'm just interested in setting a very basic, minimal uh, demand upon society to fulfill uh, these basic rights uh, for everyone. Uh, if we can go uh, further with time, that would be great, but I'm not interested in that here. Sure. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so the need has to be basic. The other condition is that the person who is in need must not violate others' equally important moral interests uh, in the exercise of her right. So, uh, and here again comes the distinction between the right being just a privilege or a privilege plus a claim. Uh, so, because I conceptualize the right of necessity um, not just as a privilege but also as a claim of non-interference so that the person who owns the property should not interfere with the needy if the needy wants to take the property, I think it's important, <laughs> I think it's a necessary requirement that the duty bearer must be in a better position than the, the right holder. I see, yeah. So, uh, and here again, I think I, uh, this distinguishes my understanding or my conceptualization of the right from, uh, from 
other uh, other conceptualizations of the right. So uh, there is this uh, other classic example of the two swimmers who are uh, trying to save after a shipwreck. They're trying to save themselves, and one gets a plank, and the other comes and uh, gets the other out and takes the plank, and the other drowns. There, uh, so that for some theorists is a case of the right of necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's not for me as I understand it because I don't think that any claims uh, are generated there. That's more like a privilege against another's, uh, a privilege against a privilege. For the right of necessity to create duties on others, um, of course, the person cannot demand that other who is equally or almost as needy uh, be generous with her property. I think that that's not, uh, that, that would make it, again, overly demanding and unreasonable. Uh, so, so that's, a, that's uh, the second requirement, right? So holders of the so invocations of the right of necessity can't um, uh, you, you you can't invoke the right of necessity against equally deprived others. Exactly, Got not it. as I conceptualize it. Got so it. I think that there you, you there it's more like Hobbes's idea of the right uh, of you know the, the the natural right to survive in whichever way you can. Sure. But that's a privilege. It's not doesn't generate any duties on others. I so the others might well defend themselves, and that that would be totally fine. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And the th- and so the third is the yeah, last resort. And, and, yeah, and so the third is the last resort. So I think, of course, uh, this is not the first thing that you appeal to as a chronically deprived person. It's the last thing you do. And what is the last thing you do? Because here, of course, there are epistemic problems. So how do you know uh, that there are no other options available? So I, I suggest that people have done everything that is uh, that has a reasonable chance of success and they have failed. And now they are in the situation where they either claim necessity or they remain in that deprived situation. Um, yeah. So excellent. That's, so that's the conditions. Well, fantastic. Um, the uh, one of the nice, um, one of the several nice features of of, uh, of your book, uh, Alejandra, is that um, you're regularly pausing to consider what critics um, might say. Uh, sometimes you're trying to um, imagine what a critic might say. Other times you're actually taking on criticisms. Um, so you devote uh, a full chapter uh, to just sort of working through um, uh, some criticisms, again, some that are uh, in the air and some that you're, you're merely anticipating. Um, particularly your concern, though, with a, with a family of criticisms, as we might call them, uh, sort of that regard the, that are concerned with the demandingness uh, uh, of your view. Um, and uh, you um, run through some nice um, sort of conceptual uh, 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 maneuvers to sort of separate out different kinds of demandingness. But you're mm-hmm. interested particularly in two kinds of demandingness worries. Uh, one you call the, the why me objection, and the other mm-hmm. you call the, the remedy is worse than the disease objection. <laughs> uh, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about the, the, the concerns about demandingness and then talk specifically about those two manifestations of demandingness objections uh, uh, in the book. Sure, yeah. So um, it's interesting that all these objections have come uh, from uh, audiences where I have presented different parts of the book. And uh, at this point, I think that, well, it's not in the book because uh, this this came later to my mind. But the objections could be divided between those uh, from... uh, capitalist-minded uh, <laughs> objectors and others coming from Marxist-minded objectors. <laughs> so, so the ones you're mentioning are basically those of uh, capitalist-minded objectors. Uh, so you said the why me objection and the remedy worse than the disease. So let me explain briefly what I have in mind. I, there is also a, um, an objection that I called the epistemic over-demandingness. So how do we know that the person is in need if you are the duty bearer? Mm-hmm. Or how does the right holder know that the duty bearer is really well off? I will leave that out for the moment. And, sure. and yeah, so focus on the, the why me and the remedy worse than the disease. Yeah, so the why me objection is basically saying, well, imagine uh, that you're uh, a not-so-well-off uh, a farmer and you have your farm just next to a huge slum and according to your theory well uh, people from the slum can come every day and jump over the fence and take your vegetables away and so you're left uh, after 
not so long, you're left in an equally deprived situation um, and an, in an equally bad situation because uh, the right of necessity, necessity says nothing about uh, iterative takings and it doesn't say anything about how well off uh, people have to be in order to become duty bearers. You just say, well, they don't have to be as badly off as uh, the the needy, but that's a really low threshold. But what about those that are badly off, but not so badly off? So, and this is a very pressing objection, I think, because this happens in the world today, every day, millions of times. So coming from a country like Chile and uh, knowing my neighbors uh, in South America, this is a daily situation where the, the, the people who are in need take things from those who are not the, the, the better off, but those who are their neighbors and who are maybe just a little better off. Right. So this creates a lot of unfairness and, uh, and yeah, why me? So people who are put in that situation, why should I bear this burden? Uh, and especially in a situation where there is this gener uh, general non-compliance, so uh, those who could, or those who should rather, are not doing what they should uh, in fulfilling their duties. So what happens with, uh, with, with, with these people who bear all the burden? And uh, yeah, the answer is hard, and, I, I, and I'm not even sure I have a fully-fledged answer to this objection, but I, what I want to say in the book is that I think that one should separate uh, the right of necessity from claims of uh, fairness or claims of justice. Uh, what I mean by this is that I don't think that we should put over the needy shoulders the burden of making the world a better place. Uh, so let me explain. I, I don't think that the needy uh, have to think necessarily about who they're going to target because they have to make uh, in the end, a better state of affairs. So they should go and target the best, uh, the best, uh, the, the person who is um, really well off, as opposed to their neighbors. Uh, I think that's a lot to ask, and it makes it very demanding on the needy. So I do say, of course, if if you are the needy person and you can choose uh, and you can pick who you want, uh, whose property you want to target. Of course, if you could, you should target those who are better off and for whom the loss will not be as hard uh, or who have not been targeted uh, repeatedly before. Uh, but I think that um, it, this objection puts the burden in the wrong shoulders, uh, so to speak. And uh, what about the remedy worse than the disease? Well, this is uh, a bit Lord Denning's objection that I, I, I mentioned before, and it's the law's objection against the right of necessity being granted to the chronically deprived. So this is basically calling for chaos and disorder, society's breakdown, uh, everyone is going to be worse off, uh, and um, you're really uh, creating or you're, um, you're granting a state of affairs where things are even going to be worse than what they already are. And uh, yeah, I take this objection seriously too. And again, I'm not sure I have a full answer uh, but if I have anything like an answer, uh, I would say two things. So, again, when I when I started with this project, my point was not to say, well, now the solution to the problem of global poverty is for all uh, need individuals to just go out and take and occupy and use whatever they can in order to get out of their plight. I think that's unrealistic. And that's even damaging uh, for the objective I, I wish uh, were attained. So I, I don't think that that's going to be the answer at all. I think the point uh, of writing this book is to say, well, on the one hand, what I want to say is, well, the needy are not just passive recipients. They are entitled to do many things. Uh, but if you see just in practical terms, uh, in fact, effects of individual disorganized action can be quite disastrous and quite disruptive. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, well, this right of necessity should serve as a normative cornerstone, as a normative foundation for many rights of the needy, which are collective rights, like, for example, the right of collective resistance or the right to protest or the right of disobedience. And this has already happened, so I'm not inventing anything new. So again, 
if you look at uh, different cases, I think a very good example is the Semterra in Brazil, the movement of rural land uh, workers, uh, who, which started as uh, takings by individual families uh, of landless peasants, and they were occupying land that was unused, and they started uh, having their lives uh, built on this land. And then uh, grassroots organizations and the church and some political parties uh, supported them and that's where the thing really started so uh, this is just a first step but it's a first um, first necessary conceptual step <laughs> to clear up before uh, we talk about rights of collective resistance uh, and so on and so forth that's on, on one on the one hand and on the other hand I think that well uh, if you don't want this disruption to happen if you're so worried that this disruption is going to happen and if you still believe that there are basic rights based on, and uh, in particular a basic right to subsistence then well we'd better sit down and rethink what cosmopolitan duties require us to do and this is quite an urgent task it's not something that we can just uh, keep the time passing and and not doing anything about it so again my reply is to emphasize the urgency of the problem and to say, well, if we really believe that they're rights and they're not just manifesto rights, we'd better do something about this. Um, so, yeah, so that's the two objections. I don't know if I have time to say something about the those who think that this is too uh, tepid and too modest. <laughs> oh, we've got a few minutes. If, if that, Yeah, sure, that would be great if you've got something, uh, if, you, if you want to address that. Yeah, so, uh, so on the other hand, there are uh, those objectors who say, well, great, this is theoretically empowering, but it's practically powerless because most of those who may claim necessity cannot claim it as a matter of fact, uh, as I said before, because the resources are inaccessible or uh, because they will, they, uh, they will end up worse off than how they began because necessity is, uh, is not recognized by the law and so they will end up being punished uh, and what I want to say there is well um, to repeat what I, I just said I think it's important to understand that this right grounds uh, really important collective rights of the needy and that this should move the discussion maybe towards thinking about those collective rights and uh, move a bit away from this uh, this discussion on the duties. So give more importance and start to look at, well, what are the needy doing and what may they do and how we can be part of that. Uh, so, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Alejandro, you've been very generous with your time today, so I thank you for that. Um, okay, ask just one, one final question. Um, you know, even just hearing you talk about the objections, it's very refreshing to hear a philosopher acknowledge that um, there are still serious objections, there's more philosophy to do, there are further thoughts worth having. Um, what's next? Are you going to follow up on some of the uh, some of the lingering issues about the right of necessity? <laughs> wow, yeah, I hope so. So I think that one lingering issue and uh, one that wakes me up at night is uh, necessity and migration, okay. or rather necessity and the migration crisis. Uh, so I, I don't explore that idea in the book. I focus on property rights, uh, but I do think that one of the implications uh, of, uh, of, 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 of this right existing and of putting this right into the, the map uh, of cosmopolitan rights is that uh, people who are in need, well, may they respect borders if the only way to get out of their plight is to ignore those borders right. so I think that's one very interesting question that I would like to uh, to keep working on and something that looks radically different but I hope it's not so radically different or disconnected is that well um, I was uh, hosted I was lucky to be hosted by the Chilean Antarctic Institute in Punta Arenas uh, in the last year and I this is, I should say, very briefly, because I'm, my other interest and what I was working on as a postdoc was the normative grounding of territorial rights and the rights and rights over natural resources and how they get divided, distributed, and why. Uh, so, as you see, there is a connection with, uh, with this. It's not so far away from the global justice discussion. 
And I started uh, looking at the case of Antarctica, and it's really fascinating because it's the only land left on Earth that is not very clear who it belongs to. Mm -hmm. So there are claims made by states, but it's not clear who uh, claims have not been acknowledged. And there is this Antarctic, uh, the Antarctic Treaty System, uh, where many countries participate, and but it's not really a, gov uh, a clear governance uh, because no one is sovereign, so it's very... Uh, it's very unclear what happens there. And at the same time, it's the only uh, place on Earth that uh, doesn't have a permanent population and doesn't have a native population. So it's a very interesting case study for territorial rights theories. And, yeah, curiously enough, it hasn't been uh, dealt with at all. So I thought, well, why not write a project on this? And uh, I got involved some of my fellow political philosophers and uh, the Norwegian Research Council uh, granted the project three years of funding. Uh, the project is called Political Philosophy Looks to Antarctica. And so the hope is to try and think about these normative questions. Uh, who should <laughs> own or should Antarctica be owned at all? How should we think about territorial rights uh, in this continent? Uh, what about global justice? What about concepts like common heritage of mankind, etc.? So, yes, that's the, basically the two fronts that I hope to be working on for the next years. Well, Alejandra, again, thank you so much for your time today. Those sound like w wonderful follow-up projects. Um, uh, and thanks for, for writing the book and uh, for talking with us today about the book. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks again for giving me the opportunity uh, to share some of the main ideas in the book. And, well, yeah, on a topic that I think it's terribly important and relevant for us today, not just as political philosophers, but as human beings. Yes, yes. And th thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, the book is titled The Right of Necessity, Moral Cosmopolitanism and Global Poverty. Once again, the author is Alejandra Mancia. And the publisher is Roman and Littlefield. Bye for now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.